Uh, welcome to Praxis. Uh, if I haven't had the privilege and blessing of meeting you, I do look forward to getting a chance to uh, get to know you better. Um, as a ministry, uh, Praxis, um, we have been going over, or we just started the book of Proverbs for the summer, and we've titled our, our series Wisdom Works because we want to understand uh, wisdom according to the scriptures and then how it works, how it should operate in our lives. And tonight's topic is actually one that we probably don't assume or associate with wisdom. Because when we think of wisdom, we think, oh, we definitely need God's wisdom when it comes to work and how I should be a Christian in a secular environment. Or maybe we think of, okay, we need God's wisdom when it comes to making decisions, big decisions in my life. Where should I live? Should I take this job? Who should I pursue? Or we think of we need godly wisdom when it comes to handling something so powerful and valuable as money. But tonight's topic is actually very pertinent. Uh, tonight we're going to be looking at wisdom and friendship. And I think this is relevant for us as a fellowship group because here at Praxis, our singles, young adult ministries for post-college till 30, uh, it's a very transient stage of life. In fact, a lot of you maybe haven't even been with us for a year. You see a lot of new faces. And in order for us to capitalize on our time together in this season of life, we need to be strategic about making friends, about being good friends to one another, about being a community of believers who will encourage each other towards Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight, wisdom and friendship and uh, this is our actual first message that deals with a topic. Last week we looked at what does it mean to fear the Lord and how that is the beginning of wisdom. And now for the remainder of our summer series, we're going to be handling various subjects. So we'll look at friendship tonight, we'll look at uh, work, we'll look at money, we'll look at purity, and so on. But for tonight we're going to address friendship. And so let's go ahead and open in a time of prayer and then we'll dive in. Let's pray. God, your word is truth. Lord, it informs us, it tells us that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we are to do it to your glory. And when we think about that verse, eating and drinking, such basic fundamental aspects of life, necessities for survival, and yet at the same time, we can glorify you in them. We can magnify your splendor and your worth by how we handle even mundane, ordinary things, including our relationships with one another. And so I pray that as Christians, we would have fresh perspective. We would see how we can redeem our relationships in a way that would exalt Christ, that would encourage and love one another. And so we ask for your help now as we look into your word, as we examine various passages that you would convict and guide us on what it means to be a friend according to Scripture. We pray for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stranger Things, Seinfeld, Parks and Rec, Terrace House, Friends. You guys are sharp, but what do all these shows have in common? I think the last one is kind of a dead giveaway, but if you strip away all the different genres and settings, these shows are about friendship. 
friendship. Some of them don't even have much of a plot, just buddies sharing life. Yet we can't stop binging as the audience. Some of us can't resist, ironically, wasting our lives watching the lives of others, even fictional characters. We wonder to ourselves what kind of pranks Joey and Chandler will pull on each other, or how the bubbly Leslie Nope will endear herself to the stoic Ron Swanson. We become so engrossed in these series, these sitcoms, because friendship, good friendship, is compelling. And there's an explanation for this. I want to start where we might not expect. I want to begin in the beginning, in Genesis 1. You can turn there in your Bibles or just listen along. But when God created the heavens and the earth, when he made man in his image, the course of his magnificent work rings loud throughout the first chapter. We have it memorized, seared in our brains that it was good, it was good, it was good. And yet this refrain is abruptly interrupted in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, when God himself declares, it is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. In his wonderful creation, God acknowledges something amiss. The first person ever created is incomplete without human relationships. And we should find this startling as we're reading this, because it's not like God himself couldn't commune with Adam. But in his wisdom, God designed us to be in relationship, not just vertically with him, but horizontally with each other. And so the creation account continues, and God provides for Adam Eve, a helpmate, a wife. And maybe you are ready to protest. Wait a minute, that's marriage, right? That's not the same as our topic for tonight, friendship. And I would agree, but I would argue friendship is more fundamental, more foundational than marriage. So while marriage certainly is more than a friendship, it's certainly not less. In fact, we know not everyone gets married, but everyone Everyone needs friends. Friendship, therefore, is the larger category that marriage and singleness belong to. And I think we really need to remember this, especially as practice, as a young adult singles ministry. We tend to pit marriage and singleness against each other as if they are in conflict, as if they are in competition you know, whether from culture, parental pressure, or our own feelings, marriage becomes kind of this pinnacle, this apex of all other relationships. It's got to be the desire and goal of every human individual. And when we do that, then we relegate singleness. Singleness then comes in second, third, or last place. And we diminish singleness as settling as a placeholder until we can finally find our soulmate. But that's just not true. That is a distorted perception. Put simply, we have too high a view of marriage and too low a view of singleness. And that's when we run into trouble. 
We set ourselves up for disappointment and failure when we invest all of our hopes into one single romantic relationship. And we think, man, if I could just get married, I'd never be lonely. I'd never struggle with lust. I'd finally be happy. But I know plenty of people, married people, who still wrestle with loneliness, purity, and contentment. Why? Because marriage was never intended to satisfy all of our relational longings. Married people need friends too. And on the other hand, we also need to reestablish the dignity of singleness. So hear me loud and clear. Singleness is not some inferior mode of existence. You are not half human. Just because you are single doesn't mean you're missing out or alone. Nothing prevents you from having good relationships, making solid friends, the same friendships married people need as well. In fact, in the Bible at times, friendships are elevated and even eclipse romantic relationships. You remember the intimate bond between David and Saul? Or not Saul, Jonathan, Saul's son? They, David and Saul did not have a friendly relationship. But David and his sons, Jonathan, definitely did. And when Jonathan dies, David grieves through poetry. David writes a poem not to some cute love interest he has, but to his late and deceased homie. And it records it for us in 2 Samuel 1, 26 When David is lamenting, and he pens, How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, guys, this doesn't mean right afterwards we have to get all weird and start dedicating poems to each other. I mean... If you want, you can. I guess that's one application. But all this to say, we need Scripture to recalibrate our expectations and understanding of both marriage and singleness. Both are viable options, according to God's Word. Both are gifts from God, and both still need good friends. It was J.C. Ryle who said, This world is full of sorrow. Because it is full of sin. It is a dark place. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. But the brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. And don't we know that? That the best things in life suffer when there are no friends to share them with. And the worst things in life, well, they're bearable when there are friends to lighten the load. Now, if friends are this valuable, this important, then we ought to give careful consideration to our friendships. You have Proverbs like Proverbs 26, which says this, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find? A faithful friend who can find? Anyone can claim to be loving, to be a good friend, but actually finding a genuine one, that's a rare thing. 
These days, we all know it's not hard to be popular. Just look at your Facebook friends or the number of followers you have on Instagram. What's harder, though, is having a true friend, someone who knows you in and out. Good friendships aren't accidental. They just don't fall from the sky. Good and godly friendships are cultivated in the soil of time, difficulty, diligence, and intentionality. How will we ever do this? Well, as we saw last time, if you were with us, we need the right fear, the right love of God to inform and invade every arena of our lives, including our relationships with one another how we befriend each other. We need wisdom to apply biblical knowledge to be skillful in choosing and becoming the right friends. And the book of Proverbs offers some principles for us to chew on, to mull over. Obviously, we can't cover everything, but I trust that this will provide some food for thought. Tonight, we'll examine four building blocks for good and godly friendships. Four building blocks for good and godly friendships. And this probably goes without saying, but the first building block is for our friendships to be centered on Christ, not just common interest. Centered on Christ, not just common interest. Proverbs 13.20 says this, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. It's pretty clear here, easy to follow. Influence is inevitable, and it travels on a two-way street. So you can tell a lot about a person by the company they keep, by the friends they have. And friendships can be knit together by a number, a multitude of things. It could be same humor, sports team, or stage of life. We can connect because we have similar hobbies morals, zip codes. Perhaps there are a variety of chat groups we belong to. You, know, you have your volleyball chat group, your tennis chat group, your Korean drama chat group, so I've heard, your video game chat group, your Bible reading chat group. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with each one of these, with shared interests, but we do need to realize the limitations, the dangers, too. That what binds us together can also be what unbinds us. So if your friendship is solely, solely centered on video games or BTS, what do you think will happen when either you or your friends lose interest? What will become of that friendship when, God forbid, there's no longer any good video games or BTS disbands? It's impossible, I know. But if your friendship with someone is based on the latest trend, it should not surprise you when your friendship changes once a fad is over. You see, we can measure the strength of our friendships by what unites us. A friendship that only shares, say, an affinity for candy is unlikely to be very substantial, right? But a friendship centered on Christ, a friendship grounded and rooted in our Lord and Savior, well, there is a profundity and a richness there. As we've been hearing on Sunday, it is an eternal union. 
that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And our relations with one another are to be marked by divine love. A unity that preaches to the world and to each other of the endless worthiness of Jesus Christ. And Christian, if the gospel is what we are about, if our identity in Christ is what we treasure the most, then it will touch every sphere, every sector of life, including our friendships. The application bubbles to the surface. Who are you walking with? Who are you walking with? Are you cultivating relationships, friendships that will encourage you to pursue love and obey Jesus Christ? Now, this might ruffle some feathers, but shouldn't our best and closest friends be Christian friendships, gospel relationships? I mean, to have it otherwise would be like a husband who says, yeah, my wife, you know, we're kind of close, we like each other and stuff, but my best friend is actually some other girl. I mean, the, the alarm should be going off, right? There is something off about that. The priorities in our relationships should be consistent with our priorities in life. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you can't have non-Christian friends or childhood buddies I'm not proposing that we insulate ourselves in a Christian bubble. We are to be in the world, but not of the world for the purpose of witnessing to the world. And yet, there is wisdom, even as we looked at that proverb, in making sure your inner circle are those who participate in the same mission, those who are also traveling on the narrow road. Jesus was a friend of sinners. But even his most intimate friends were Peter, James, and John. There's no denying Jesus dined with the tax collector and had compassion on the lost. And we too should befriend our neighbors and those who don't know Christ. But our non-Christian fellowships are evangelistic at the end of the day. True Christian fellowship only happens among fellow Christians that those who have the loudest voice and the biggest influence are friends who will point you to Jesus, not away from him. We share Christ. And so at the outset, is this the kind of friend you are? The kind of friend you want? You know, the older I get, I'm not much older than you. (laughs) Just want to put that out there. (laughs) But the older I get, the more I want friends who will Simply just help me love Jesus and love others more. The older I get, the more I want to be this kind of friend to others. Now, what does this look like? What are the nuts and bolts to Christian friendships? Well, this leads us to our second building block for good and godly friendships. The second building block for good and godly friendships is counseling, not coddling. Counseling, not coddling should be no shocker since at Lighthouse here we are big on biblical counseling. But I want you to realize this is not something reserved for a select group of people. Counseling isn't a specialized ministry. It is the responsibility and privilege of, get this, of all good friends. It's on you, Praxis, and it's on me. Proverbs 27.9 says this, 
Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. In the ancient Near East, oil and perfume were luxuries. They were precious commodities, uh, stuff that only the rich possessed. And Solomon here is drawing a parallel. He's saying a friend is like an expensive ointment. But notice what Solomon highlights. What makes this particular friend precious and fragrant? The counsel. The counsel he gives. Is this, then, a mainstay for your friendships? Is this an essential quality for you, for what you're looking for in others? That you and your friends impart and welcome wise counsel, truth according to the Scriptures. Now, we might think this means that in every conversation with a friend, uh, we need to be explicitly talking about Jesus and the Bible. That if there's no spiritual substance, well, then it's pointless and God is not pleased. But if we're truly intentional, then even small talk can be full, packed with intent. Rome wasn't built overnight, and neither are friendships. And so small talk can actually be helpful. They can be the bricks that are laid to then later support big talks, weighty conversations. So don't despise questions about favorite colors and plans for the weekend. No one is going to be willing to disclose their darkest secrets, their deepest struggles, and ask for your input unless you can first shoot the breeze with them and establish a rapport. You see, counseling usually comes after hours, days, months, even years of chit-chat, as friendship is forged. But in the same, counseling should come. It needs to come. So if your friendship is only shallow conversations about burritos and movies, then you're just laying bricks without blueprints. A friend builds with a purpose in mind. Solomon here in this proverb, he's snapping his fingers so that we don't miss this. Think about it. This is the wisest man in human history, and he is charging us to leverage our friends to gain wise counsel. That part of being wise is learning and leaning upon the wisdom of others. You've heard of strength in numbers. Well, there is wisdom in numbers. A good friend adds another pair of eyes for your blind spots to shore up the weaknesses you may have. But counsel isn't only for your protection to steer you away from what's detrimental and foolish. A good friend can also have a positive effect. You have access to another person's set of giftings, resources, and skills to make you wiser, better at life. I mean, we often pool and ask our friends about tricks to get the best deal on a car or how to file taxes, or restaurant recommendations. Why? Because we see the advantage of gleaning from another person's experience and expertise. And if we seek our friend's thoughts on earthly and lesser matters, why not the important decisions? Why not spiritual things? As one pastor put it, 
Talk to godly friends about sex and money and all the things we keep hidden. Get their advice before buying a house or taking a new job or getting married. The best friends combine their IQs and get smarter as a result. You see, sanctification is a project best done with good friends, with their counsel. We want wisdom from above. And often, it comes through the friends God has placed around us. Now, don't confuse counseling with coddling. Counseling is in accordance with God's word for another person's good, whereas coddling is for your own gain, for your own benefit. You see, we're not heaping praise or endorsing everything a friend does to ingratiate ourselves and win brownie points. We're not employing flattery or empty words just to avoid difficult conversations. That's just a scheme to get people to like you or to stay comfortable. And when we do that, the consequences are disastrous. I call this the William Hung phenomenon. You guys know who he is? Most of you, half of you? William Hung tried out for American Idol in 2004, and he became infamous because of his audition. And I use the word infamous in its most literal sense because the boy was not good, okay? First off, he sang a Ricky Martin song. And not only that, but it was completely off-pitch. And to add more, I don't know what it was, he added uh, questionable dance moves to his performance. And it was one of the most cringe-worthy things you could observe. It was so bad that it's one of those situations where you feel worse than the guy doing it because he's just oblivious. It was so awful, it actually became amazing. Um, <laughs> but you would think that this would be a stern warning, right? A message to the masses that other musically challenged people would learn from this catastrophe. And yet, every year, without fail, there are always a few contestants trying out for American Idol who have no business being there. It makes you wonder, how in the world do these people in the right minds ever think they can be the next American Idol? And I'll tell you, it's because standing next to these tone-deaf con contestants are a bunch of enablers. Friends and family members, you see them after the audition counseling, don't worry about it. America doesn't know what they're missing out on. And then it all makes sense, right? That these friends are more invested in coddling than earnest counsel. And for that, everyone suffers, especially the contestant. Look, I don't know anyone who needs help getting a bigger head. Pride is our default setting. You and I need friends who will give it to us straight, who will counsel us to remain on course and then correct us when we're veering off path, which leads us to our third building block for good and godly friendships. The third building block is correction, not criticism. Correction, not criticism. We'll go to Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of, of, a, <coughs> of an enemy. Excuse me. Enemies, well, they smile at you while stabbing you in the back. 
And me and my friends, we call this Judas kisses, right? Imposters who sing your praise, who kiss you while slipping a knife in your side. Faithful friends, well, faithful friends are at least honest enough to stab you in the front. They look you in the eye and tell you you're terrible. (laughs) But in reality, you and I, we need people in our lives to tell us hard things to tell us, don't try out for American Idol, you are not the next Beyonce. To tell us, stripes don't look good on you, wear solid colors only. Or just the plain sheer fact that you smell, go take a shower. Right? And these words, they can sting. Correction is often unpleasant, but we can trust it's for our good because we know who it's coming from. We know who's administering the pain. A scalpel can be a dangerous weapon in the hands of an assassin, or it can be a life-saving instrument in the hands of a surgeon. Now, in both scenarios, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. But one is for your healing. The other is for your harm. Some of my closest friends have been ones who have said the most hurtful things in my life. And I won't bore you with a huge laundry list of my failures, but they have called me out for my short temper, my selfishness, my careless words. And I'm not going to lie, it sucks. You know, they're not things that you naturally want to hear. It's not fun to have your sins exposed and brought out into the open. But there is a reason it's called the growing pains. Maturity requires refining. And in hindsight now, I see that I'm better for their correction. These wounds are inflicted by a friend, by a friend. And that's crucial because it takes time to get there, to discern, okay, is this a friend or foe approaching me? Is this a friend or enemy who is correcting me? Which is insightful because first and foremost, you shouldn't be known for your correction. First and foremost, you should be known for your friendship. I remember at a different church, there was this intern who was about to teach Sunday school. And he asked way too eagerly, his first question was, can I rebuke people? <laughs> can I rebuke people? And we were like, oh my goodness, this is, this is not going to end well. Because if the only occasion you're talking to others is to correct, that is the posture of a critic not a friend. The opportunity to reprove is earned through friendship. So have you invested in relationships to demonstrate your faithfulness, that you are for them? Do you have capital to spend on difficult conversations, on correction, because you are credible? It is a lot easier for someone to receive admonishment when you have a proven track record, when you have been their strongest advocate and a consistent source of encouragement, so that when you point out the error of their ways, they're not thinking, well, this guy, he only speaks to me to bash me. No, but I've seen countless times how they've built me up, they've encouraged me. And that's the main distinction I'm making here between correction and mere criticism. Correction is best done alongside someone, as a companion, as a friend. Criticism is usually from the outside, from an opponent. It's more like a hit-and-run job, 
right? Like they drive by, smash things up, only to leave, leave you picking up the pieces. But a true friend breaks you down and then sticks around to build you up. And I know correction is scary. It's an intimidating thing. No one wants to come across as the morality police or a condescending Mr. Know-it-all. Let's all acknowledge that this doesn't come easy to any of us, and then let's make it easier on each of us. Take the initial step. If you know, if you believe that this is for your good, for your growth, and it is uncomfortable for your friends to broach this topic, then make the first move. Invite them to do so. Ask someone who has observed your life, maybe a discipler, accountability partner, a close friend. You can tell them, hey, I trust you. I know you love me, that you care for me. Are there areas in my life that are not in step with Scripture? Areas in my life where I'm not honoring the Lord. Help me see these parts of my life that I may grow. And when we approach each other in this fashion, when we model humility, then it invites humility. It prompts others to humbly address us and correct us. In practice, what kind of community would this foster if we took this seriously? If we saw it as our joy and responsibility to help each other mature? It might feel awkward at first, but this is really part and parcel to growth. A gymnast who wants to improve, well, they invite their coach to fine-tune and tweak, say, their mechanics for the balance beam. Now, you don't have to open the floodgates to everyone, but I just want to ask, is there anyone, is there anyone in your life with a direct line, with an open channel, who can speak into your life in this way? To tie it all together, consider Proverbs 27, 17. Proverbs 27, 17, it's really popular. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. The key word here is sharpen. Not to soothe or cut down. Some of you lean towards being a sponge. You know, you're all about being soft, cuddly, keeping the peace, you know, buttering people up so they feel good about themselves, even if you notice that they are in danger. Others of you may lean more towards being a butcher's knife. And so you jump on the opportunity to dice someone up, to chop them down to size. And your concerns may even be valid. They may be legitimate, but you are too busy hacking away to be helpful. You see, open heart surgery requires both skill and delicacy. The aim, the aim in our correction and our counsel is to sharpen, not to pamper and not to pulverize. And this summarizes what we covered in counseling and correcting. It's tricky. It is a fine line to tiptoe so that we don't coddle or criticize. We haven't even teased and tackled the how, when, what, and who. And neither do we have the time. We'll address this in some other messages, but suffice to say, 
We need to exercise wisdom. The last building block for tonight is commitment. Commitment, not convenience. The last building block for good and godly friendships is commitment, not convenience. And Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is an epic tale of adventure. I'm sure many of us have either read the book, uh, watched the movie, or just um, peruse Wikipedia. But do you know who the hero of the story is? I heard whispers of it, but delay that spoiler, because this is my illustration, okay? <laughs> you might suggest that it's Gandalf the White, this incredible wizard who magically appears at the right moment to bail the group out of trouble. Or maybe it's Aragorn, right? The noble warrior with long hair and skilled with sword and rightful heir to the throne. Perhaps we think it's got to be Frodo, right? I mean, that makes logical sense. That's a good guess. After all, he's the hobbit tasked with destroying the ring. Well, in one of his letters, Tolkien mentions who he considers as the chief hero of his story. It's Samwise Gamgee. Samwise Gamgee. And what made Sam so special? Well, I don't know. You know, like, I would never choose him. But it wasn't the mastery of a bow and arrow, not his good looks or quick wit. Sam was a faithful friend. When Frodo is ready to resign and give up on his mission, it's Sam who cheers his friend to press on. When Frodo is deceived by others or captured by enemies, it's Sam who comes to his aid. Sam is committed. He's committed to the other end, a devoted companion who ensures Frodo completes his mission. Where other characters can cast fireballs or wield an axe, Sam's special power is his loyalty. And I know, I know, boo, that's lame, it's cheesy. But don't dismiss the value of a committed friend. Just think of your own life. Birthday celebrations. Hospital visits. An invitation to Thanksgiving dinner. A call on Father's Day. Because Dad is gone. These are the memories, the moments, where the loyalty of a friend, they shine through. They're emblazoned upon our hearts. And the Proverbs, well, they affirm this. You have Proverbs like 1717. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Or Proverbs 1824. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer, even closer than a brother. Now that's bizarre. I don't know about you, but growing up, me and my brother. We were your typical pair. We would fight and bicker about everything all the time, just your usual sibling dynamic. And I was a pretty whack older brother. There was this one time he was, my younger brother was really annoying me, following me around. So I told him, I said, hey, if you look closely at this orange peel, you'll see these really cool, neat stars. And so being the foolish little brother, he holds the orange peel to his, close to his eye. And at that moment, I go in for the kill and I tear it. And all the citrus goes into his eyes. And he's like, ah, and he cr he's crying. And I know, I was whack. I, I mean, I, I prefaced it. So this was before I was a Christian too. So don't hold it against me. But if we were at school or at the park 
and someone was messing with my brother, it didn't matter, right? E- even if, uh, if whoever was right or wrong, it-, it didn't matter if I was mad at my brother or not, it was on, right? No one beats up my brother except me. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You might not be particularly close with your sibling, but when problems arise, you got each other's back. Your family. But Solomon, in these Proverbs, he writes something very provocative. He says, there is a friend that is closer than a brother. Now, granted, a sibling can be a close friend, but we know it's not automatic or a given. It can just be a family connection for tough times. But Solomon writes, there is a friend who loves regardless of the situation, who is committed. This friendship is not circumstantial, even bound by your family lineage. It's not one that is about convenience. Commitment versus convenience. A companion or a consumer. And so allow me the opportunity to gently prod. Are you, are you a loyal friend? Sure, we are all inclined towards those we vibe or get along with, but is that the benchmark for the majority of our friendships? Is that the standard? We want a friend who makes us laugh, is fun to be around, who we can vent to or will help us move out of our apartment. But are we interested in being that friend to others, in being a friend to others when they are crying, when they're not so pleasant and delightful to be around, when they're constantly complaining, or when they need help moving out? I'm not saying you need to slave away and only surround yourself with people who make you miserable. Don't do that. But just take stock. Take inventory of your friendships. Do most of your friendships revolve around you or others? Do people gravitate towards you because they know you're high maintenance or because you're a joyful servant? I don't think any of us would complain about a friend who's always interested in our best interests, who is committed to our good. But can that be said of us? Are we in it? Are we committed or flaking when there's nothing in it for us? And commitment, for the most part, assumes proximity. Perhaps some of you haven't made good friends for the sheer fact that you haven't been around. And so one practical step to grow in friendships is simply to show up. This is low-hanging fruit. Come out to practice. I mean, the fact that you are here is already one step in the right direction. But I don't mean just slipping in five minutes after opening prayer and bouncing right after the sermon. I mean staying, staying to catch up even after small groups or grabbing lunch with people on Sunday, initiating meetups and hangouts, attending events. You know what I'm encouraged by? Even as we're reopening as a church, I notice on Thursdays there are various people just hanging out together. You're going to have to eat dinner, so why not eat dinner together to sharpen one another, to be encouraged, to foster a friendship around the things of God? You see, you can't grumble about the lack of community if you haven't made yourself available to community. 
You can't complain about not having a friend who doesn't love at all time when you haven't given people any time. Now, I know hearing a message on friendship can be hard. It reminds you of your discontentment with how this is going or how you yearn for just one close friend. Maybe it brings up a lot of painful memories of how others have betrayed your trust or how you've lost a friend because they moved away or for whatever reason. And even as we've worked through these building blocks, maybe your temptation is to judge your friends, to use this rubric and conclude how people in your life, well, they are being subpar as friends. So-and-so has not done too hot in imparting wise counsel. That guy was harsh with me when he rebuked me. That girl was MIA when I really needed her. And we can get very bitter very quickly. And I want to caution us. That's counterproductive. Let's extend grace to one another. Be prayerful and patient in giving people time and room to grow. You know, at the end of the day, we can't control or change others. But we, we can do, each one of us, is to raise a mirror to ourselves. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? You can turn there if you want. This is Luke 10. Um, or you can just follow along as I summarize it for us. But in the parable of the Good Samaritan, after being commended, sorry, before that, the telling of the parable, um, the lawyer, after being commended for uh, summing up the entirety of the law as loving the Lord with all of our hearts and loving our neighbor as ourselves, this lawyer wants specifics. He wants to justify himself and then be told by Jesus who exactly is his neighbor, who he is obligated and charged to love. And that is what prompts and cues Jesus to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. You probably know the story, but what's really fascinating is how Jesus brings the parable to a close. The lawyer and we are often so preoccupied with who is our neighbor, who is our friend, who are we obligated to love? Is it my literal neighbor next door? Is it the coworker I share a cubicle with or my old college friend or fellow small group member? But Jesus, he changes the question. Because in Luke 10, verse 36, he pierces self-centered hearts and he asks, a priest, a Levite, a Samaritan, who proved to be a neighbor. You see the subtle but seismic shift? Not who is my neighbor, but who proved to be a neighbor. Look, don't concern yourself with who your neighbor is, who you are to befriend. Be a neighbor. Be a friend. And God will take care of the rest. Focus not on others, but yourself. Are you becoming the type of neighbor, the kind of friend the Bible speaks of? And we have more than a perfect example. Jesus is not just wisdom personified. He is the perfect friend. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 15, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And we know Peter vowed to do this. You know, when he's boastful and he tells Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. It's an audacious claim. But Jesus was the one who kept his word. 
All the uh, disciples deserted, inner three included. No one stepped up to the plate. Jesus, Jesus went to the cross. He did exactly what he charged his friends. He laid down his life for his friends, dying as a friend of sinner by taking the place of sinners. At the cross, Jesus encapsulates and embodies true friendship. He doesn't just teach on friendship. Jesus literally demonstrates it with his flesh and blood. And by grace, through faith in Christ, we can be forgiven for times when we have failed as friends with one another, times when we have failed in our relationship with God. We can be reconciled. And the good news of the gospel is we can be friends of God. That the God of the universe is our friend, one who is always wise in counsel, one who is always gentle in correction. That Christian, he is committed to you for your eternal good. He is a true friend. Jesus is a true friend, so we can be friends, and we can enjoy friendships because they ultimately deepen our appreciation of our relationship with God and our friendship with Christ. Let's pray. God, we should not treat that statement by your son so lightly or in a cavalier manner. Lord, that you would consider us your friends, that Christ would prove his loyalty to his own by laying down his life. Lord, we pray that this would be something personal to us because it warms our hearts. It, it demonstrates to us what love, divine love, looks like. And then it models to us how we should relate with one another. How we are to cultivate friendships in our lives that are centered around Christ, that celebrate what he has done, that remind and rehearse the glories of the gospel, that it would even trickle down into our words, how we counsel each other, how we correct each other with love, patience, charity and grace. Lord, that it would shape our standards for friendship, that we would be looking not to have our needs met, but to the interests of others, just as Christ did. And so, Lord, continue to teach us, convict us, grow us as we deliberate ways in which we can be better friends to one another. Lord, and I am excited to see, as your word lays hold of us, what kind of culture will be created here? What kind of community, as we are committed not just to what is easy and fun, but to hard things, good and robust friendships grounded in the gospel. And so we ask for your help because we need it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.